We are having a lot of technical difficulties right now um, with our connection and whatnot. So if you are hearing this, I encourage you to just stick with me. And uh, if you can't, if it, if it won't, won't keep going, then the sermon will be available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We'll get it up later this afternoon so that you can watch it uh, and I would, or listen to it, and I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, I want to introduce myself. If there are guests watching us, some guests here. My name is Pastor Michael. Uh, I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at New Breed. Uh, and I just want to say again, good morning. It's good to be back with you another week. Uh, I am thankful that the Lord has sustained us, that he's allowed us another week to gather together to worship his great name and to hear from him as we dive into his word. I don't, I don't say that lightly. I believe that every time we approach this moment of the week, every time we open God's word, every time we listen to it proclaimed, we are hearing God speak. And my prayer is that we would savor this time together this morning. Our text this morning is 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, and we're going to be reading through chapter 2, verse 2, and I've entitled this morning's sermon, Walking in the Light, Walking in the Light. I'd invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read 1 John chapter 1, beginning there in verse 5, and again reading through chapter 2, verse 2. <clears throat> Hear what John writes, he says, this is the message we have heard from him. And declare to you that God is light. And there is absolutely, there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Heavenly Father, as we approach Your Word, give us grace to walk in the light. Give us grace to see and to hear the truth that You would have us to know. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, New Breed, as you know, uh, last week... We started a new series through the book of 1 John, and the series as a whole is entitled The True Christian Life, The True Christian Life. And, and throughout this book, what John is doing is John is encouraging believers to remain steadfast, to cling to truth, to live holy lives in the midst of deceit and false teachings and literal schisms that are taking place in the church. The churches that John is writing to, they are splitting apart because of false teaching. And you know, last week we briefly highlighted, and I want to remind you of it now, the approach that John takes when he's writing to this church, these churches, because it really is an interesting approach. Because if you remember, there are those who are proclaiming false ideas about Jesus. So John is writing in the, to believers who are in the midst of churches where, where two false things are being taught. And they're kind of on either side of the spectrum. There are some who are denying that Jesus is God. 
They're denying his messiahship. But there are some on the other side, and this is probably the more prominent group at the time, who are, they are denying the incarnation. They are denying that God took on flesh. Basically, they are denying the humanity of Jesus. But this is what's so fascinating with John. Rather than present the believers with a faithful rebuttal to all these false truth claims, rather than present them with the arguments that will allow them to crush the false ideas that are present in the church, John focuses on something completely different. John focuses on how these true believers are meant to live in the midst of these lies. Now, if you remember, we made mention of the fact last week that this is extremely applicable to us in our day and age. Because there is a real temptation to focus more on correcting others' lies than living the true Christian life. And I'm going to give the same caveat I gave last week. I'm not saying that we shouldn't address falsehoods. We absolutely should. We should contend for the faith and contend for truth. We should know, know the truth of God's words to be able to combat any argument raised against him. But you see, our chief aim is not to correct the lies of other people. Our chief aim is to live holy lives. And hear me, there is a temptation to evaluate our faithfulness based off of how well we can crush people's claims rather than examining how we are living in spite of that nonsense. And I said this last week, and I believe it, the church in America is in a very unique time. There are splits taking place in the church. That is without question. There are, there are some that have shown to be, to be in the midst of idolatry, that are worshiping parties, that are worshiping presidents more than they worship their king. The church is in a perilous state, and our chief aim should not be to combat every argument that is raised, but our chief aim, our first aim, should be to live holy lives in the midst of a broken world. So let me put it another way. It does not matter how well you can articulate that justice is a necessary outworking of the gospel if you never do justice. It does not matter if you can articulate that a, that a necessary neighbor is caring for the poor and the marginalized if you never care for the poor and the marginalized. It does not matter if you can articulate that abortion is an abomination to our God, which it is, if you never step in to defend those precious image bearers in the womb and care for those mothers that think they have no other option. It does not matter if you can articulate the need for every believer to make much of the grace of God revealed in the gospel if you never share the gospel with those around you. Listen, I know that not a one of us can do all of those things. I'm not trying to tell you that you have to, but what I am trying to communicate is that faithfulness is not defined solely by the truth you can articulate. Faithfulness is most clearly seen in what you do. And John knows this. And so his primary concern is not that the Christians that he is writing to have all the right answers. Again, he wants them to have the right answers. But his primary concern is that they live holy lives. Why? Well, because James put it like this. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Yeah, that is a powerful question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. I am not saying that if you do all of the right things, you will have faith. I am saying that if you have faith, you will do all of the right things. James goes on, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Our faith is made evident by what we do. And hear me, brothers and sisters, in our day and age, Christianity, in our country right now, Christianity is getting a very bad rap. It is getting a very bad rap, and it is not because the truth of the gospel is offending people. It is not because of the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is because the name of Christ has been hijacked by those who are walking in darkness. And it does not matter if you can articulate that they are walking in darkness, that they are not being faithful to what Christianity actually is, why what they are doing is nothing more than idolatry. It doesn't matter if you can articulate that because nothing will change that perception by the world except true believers, genuine Christians walking in the light living out the faith that we have. And our faith is made evident by what we do. Therefore, John wants his readers to live holy lives. Again, this does not mean that he won't address the issues being raised. He will. He did even in his introduction. He, he, he indirectly spoke to both of those falsehoods being raised in the church. He will address them, but, but he will do this as he pushes believers to live lives pleasing to God. This is his primary concern. I mean, we know this because it says it even in the text that we just read in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Not so that you will have all the answers. Not so that you can win every argument. I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. So that you will live holy and pleasing lives in the sight of your God. And so last week, what John did is he laid a foundation by communicating, first and foremost, that there is truth, that truth exists, it is objective, and it is grounded in the very character and nature of God, Jesus himself being truth incarnate. But John also reminded the people that he had experienced this truth. Do you remember that? He said, listen, I've seen Jesus, I've touched Jesus, I have experienced this truth. And and we talked about how we, as believers, can say the same thing through the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit brings us into all truth. The Holy Spirit allows us to experience the truth. But finally, John reminded them that this truth that exists, this truth that we can experience, when it is truly experienced, it will change everything. And this week in our text, John is going to begin to flesh out what it looks like when that truth starts everything. He is going to challenge his hearers to live faithfully by calling them to walk in the light. Now, in order for in order for Christians to walk in there in the light, there are two things that John articulates that we have to view correctly. These are the two points of the sermon. We're going to spend some time on each one of them. There are two things that John articulates we have to view correctly. We have to view God correctly, and we have to view ourselves correctly. So first, if we're going to be people who walk in the light, we have to view God correctly. We have to view God correctly. Look again at verse 5. He says, this, <clears throat> this is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light. 
and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now, in order for us to fully understand what John is saying, we have to understand the imagery that he's using here. Because light and darkness are common pictures in Scripture. In fact, light and darkness are common pictures in almost any religion. But, but they mean something. And, and in Scripture, typically, light and darkness are tied to one of two things. In Scripture, light and darkness either refer, refer to truth and or righteousness. So when the Bible speaks of light, it is speaking of either truth or righteousness. Listen to what, what John Stott writes. He says this, the categories of light and darkness belong to the universal language of religious symbolism. They are common to most religions, not least the revealed religion of the Bible. They are used metaphorically in scripture in several senses. Intellectually, light is truth and darkness, ignorance or error. Morally, light is purity and darkness, evil. So he's picking up on those two things, right? That, that in Scripture, truth typically refers to, or, or that light typically refers to truth or to righteousness. And, you know, we can support this idea with Scripture. I'll give you a few in terms of light being truth. We can look at Proverbs 6.23. For a command is a lamp, teaching is a light, and corrective discipline is the way of life. You could look at 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus, right? Speaking of truth, but in terms of light being righteousness, we see it in Isaiah 5, 20, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who substitute darkness for light, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see it in Ephesians 5, verses 8 and 9. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so now, now he's going to give us the picture of what the fruit of light is. He says, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So what John is communicating when he makes this statement that God is light, John is communicating that God is the source of everything that is true and he is the source of everything that is right. And then when you add in the latter part of the verse that there is absolutely no darkness in him, John is making the claim and pointing his hearers to remember the reality that our God is holy. Our God is holy. And listen to me, please. He is not saying this to merely make a theological observation. Oftentimes when we talk about the holiness of God, we, we want to think in theological terms. What does that mean? How do you flesh that out? No, he's not making the claim God is holy to try to get them to think in theological terms. He's not making a theological observation. The holiness of God for John has practical implications for the Christian. He's just not making a theological statement. He's making a practical application. I mean, consider what we just talked about. If we want to know what is true, if we want to know what is right and good, we look to God revealed through His Son, made known through the Word. The holiness of God declares to us that He is the objective standard of everything that is right and everything that is good. Within the very fabric of God's being is perfection. God is holy. He is the standard. He is our standard. And what this reminds us of as Christians is that we cannot take our cue of what is right and good based off of what the society determines is right and good. 
Often God's standard and even the quote-unquote Christian world standard are different. Listen to me, we do not determine what is right based off cultural talking points. We do not determine what is right and true based off of theological degrees or people who possess them. We do not determine what is right and true based off acceptable practices in society. We do not determine what is right and true based off of any political party. We determine truth and righteousness as we look to God revealed through the Son, made known through the Word. And I'm going to be honest with you, brother brothers and sisters, for just a minute, for just a minute, listen, I came to preach this morning, okay? Many of us are really good at parroting the talking points of our day. But I want to tell you, and I want you to hear me, that a Christian with a fingerprint-covered keyboard but a dust-covered Bible has no place in the cultural conversation because you have forsaken the source by which we know what is good and true. You've abandoned the right to speak to the culture. When your keyboard is more stained than your Bible. The world does not need more opinions. The world does not need your opinion. The world needs the holiness of God made known. The world needs Christians who reveal light, not as they argue about it, but as they walk in it. And if we are going to ever walk in the light, it begins by viewing God correctly. And brothers and sisters, I know that this might seem elementary, but it is a needed reminder. We need this book. We need it in our lives. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says the verse that so many of us know, all scripture is inspired by God. Listen to this. And it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. It is through the Bible that we come to encounter and know the living God. It is through the Bible we see and understand our God who is light. And it is with the Bible that we engage the lost who are in the midst of great darkness. But again, this all begins with a correct view of God. Our God is holy and in Him there is no darkness. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So John begins and He makes this claim that, listen, we've got to view God correctly. If we're ever going to walk in the light, we have to view God correctly. But after revealing that if we are to walk in the light, we need to view God correctly, John continues on and reveals that second, we must view ourselves correctly. We must view ourselves correctly. And John spends the remainder of our text this morning fleshing out this idea of viewing ourselves correctly in light of who God is, in light of that perfection that is ingrained in the very fabric of his, of his being, in light of him, who are we? We have to view ourselves correctly. And it's interesting how John does this. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this. I know some of you said that you had been studying John this week kind of preparing for the sermon, but it's interesting because as John approaches this idea of viewing ourselves correctly, he does it rather, rather systematically. Because what John does is he gives three pairs of if statements. 
Do you notice that there are six if statements that are about to come? And there are three pairs. They're paired together. And so, so the statement in verse 6 is paired with verse 7. The, the statement in verse 8 is paired with 9. And the, and the statement in verse 10 is paired with chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And each pair follows a structure. It begins with a negative statement and then concludes with a positive statement. And with these statements, John is helping the readers see themselves correctly in light of the fact that God is light and there is no darkness in him. And so first, in verses 6 and 7, John records this. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. So that's the negative statement there in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. But here comes the positive statement in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen to this, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise God. So what the negative there in verse six teaches us is that our fellowship with God is revealed in how we walk. Our fellowship with God is revealed in how we walk. And John basically says, listen, I know it may sound harsh, but listen, you are a liar If you say you have fellowship with God, if you say you have fellowship with light, but you walk in darkness, he says, you are a liar. Now, I want to be crystal clear about what John is not saying. John is not saying that if you sin or if you struggle with patterns of sin in your life, you are not truly a Christian. And I want to make sure we hear that because so many Christians have approached this text and read that and thought, man, he says that that if I that that if I if I walk in darkness, that I have no fellowship with God, I'm making him out to be a liar and I'm a liar. I, I must not be a Christian. And I want to remind you of something that John's aim is not to have believers doubt whether or not they are saved. His aim, as it says in chapter two, verse one, is that believers would not sin. His goal isn't for anyone to doubt their salvation. His goal is to encourage saints to walk in holiness and to avoid sin. And the key to understanding this verse, the key to understanding what John is and is not saying is that word walk. That's a very important word when he says walk in darkness or walk in light. And what John is pointing to, listen, is not a struggle with sin. What John is not talking about is even a pattern of sin. You've heard me preach it from this pulpit. I believe, and you can probably testify, I think for you who are believers, I could go around this room and every one of you could testify that there are patterns of sin that you struggle with. Some of you might have been struggling with these same stupid sins since you were six, seven, eight years old. Some of you, you, if you're honest, might feel really defeated by those sins. And hearing that verse makes you think, I can't be a Christian because I have struggled with this sin for so many years of my life. Listen, I'm almost 35 years old. There are sins in my life that I have been struggling with since I was 10, 11, 12 years old. That God in his kindness has decided not to, to... to fully deliver me from this. But I want you to notice the word that I use. Is, I said, word I use, I said, struggle with sin. See, we can have patterns of sin that we are struggling with, but we have to be struggling with them. We have to be fighting against them. You see, this word walk here, 
He's not talking about a moment of sin. He's not even talking about a pattern of sin. He is talking about those whose lifestyle is one where sin is ignored. He's talking about the ongoing practice of refusing to fight for holiness, refusing to repent and allowing sin to reign in your life freely. That is what it means to walk in darkness. Not that you are struggling with sin. Praise God for the struggle. The fact that you are struggling is evidence that the Spirit is working in you. Because listen, left to your own, you would not struggle with sin. You would savor every second of it and watch your soul go straight to hell. But the Holy Spirit is fighting on our behalf. He is pushing our conscience and our minds to hate these things. And we struggle with them. He's not talking about a pattern. He's not talking about a moment. He's talking about a lifestyle where unrepentance is allowed to flourish. One commentator notes this. He says the verb walk. Peripateo in the Greek is commonly used to refer to one's lifestyle. Thus, John is not saying, John is not saying that any individual act of sin puts the lie to a claim to know God, but that a lifestyle characterized by ongoing unrepentant sin, hear that, but a lifestyle characterized by ongoing and unrepentant sin proves one is not converted. Let me put it another way for you. If you are comfortable with the sin in your life, if you are good with it remaining and resting in your home, in your heart, you may be proving yourself to be an unbeliever and proving that you do not have fellowship with God. But just because you sin and you may struggle with the same sin over and over and over and over, it does not mean necessarily that you are not in the faith. The lifestyle matters. And we see this in the positive sense, even there in the next verse in 1 John 1, 7. He says, if we walk in light, so he's contrasting the walking in darkness, but saying we walk in light with actually walking in light. He says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, He says, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So contrasting verse six, John says that if we walk, if our lifestyle is one of pursuing truth and righteousness, if we have a life and not just a moment that is lived in pursuit of God, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of that sin that we struggle with. All of that sin we battle. But there are two things that I want to note about this verse. First, I want you to notice the the fellowship aspect. You might have caught it there. It's interesting that in verse 6, he says that if we walk in darkness, we don't have fellowship with God. But then in verse 7, he says if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I mean, the first question that I ask is, well, why in verse 7 doesn't he say we have fellowship with God? That's what I want. I, mean, I want you to tell me I have fellowship with God. I get that if I'm walking in darkness, I don't, have, I don't have fellowship with God. But if I'm walking in light, why did you have fellowship with one another and not fellowship with God? Well, because what John wants us to understand is that our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another are intimately connected. They can't be separated. You've heard this from me before. You, know, you heard it when Pastor Curtis was here. I mean, you remember Ruth? That declaration of Ruth? 
Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Why? Because body, then the first question you have to ask is, is there unholiness in my life? So I'm going to tell you, 99.9% out of 100, it's you and not everybody else in the body. Holiness is the ground in which fellowship grows. But the second thing I want you to notice about verse 7 is how he, he mentions this cleansing from sin. And this, this shows us that we, we can have fellowship with God and with one another. We can walk in the light as we battle sin because Jesus will be cleansing. Why? Because a, a life lived walking in the light is a life marked by repentance. And as we repent, Jesus will cleanse us from our sin. Now, this word is interesting because in this usage, so, so this word cleanse in the original language, you, you'll notice that a few verses down, it's going to talk about cleansing again. And they're the same Greek word, but what's interesting is the tenses they're written in. And that, that matters in the Greek language. I'm not going to bore you with why it matters. Just know that the tense matters in the Greek language, okay? I did pick up that from my classes, all right? Tense matters. But, but, but this word... This cleansing here in verse 7 is written in the present active, meaning that it is something that is happening now and it is ongoing, it is continuing. Think about that for a minute, that the cleansing from sin that John is talking about is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing, ever-present cleansing in the life of a believer. Let's praise God for that. You know why we say praise God? Because our sin is ever-present and ongoing in our lives. Right? We won't reach perfection on this side of glory. We will, we will battle the sin until the day we die. And the amazing thing is that as long as the fight endures, the cleansing is there to wash. And that should give us great joy. Because it means that as we continue to sin, God continues to forgive. And this is how we can continue to walk in light even as we battle sin and at times fail because God continues to forgive. But as John continues on in helping us to view ourselves correctly in the, in the two sets of verses that follows, he deals with an argument that may be raised in, in light of this first set, right? In light of this thing that we just talked about, if, if you walk in, you know, if you claim to walk in the light, but you're walking in darkness, you're a liar, the truth is not in you. But if you walk in light, then you can have fellowship with God. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. It, it's almost as if in these next, next two sets, John's anticipating a couple questions. He's anticipating a couple responses. Perhaps he's anticipating the response, well, John, I agree with you that if, if we live lives marked by unrepentant sin, we cannot be in fellowship with God. We cannot be in fellowship with, with one another. But good news, John, I don't sin anymore. Right? John, John's going to deal with that argument. But, but John's also going to deal with, with, with the response that might come of like, well, what we've already talked about. Well, in light of what you just said, I'm not, I'm not sure I could even say I'm a Christian because I struggle with sin. I battle sin and it seems like sin is just overpowering me more than I'm overpowering it through the power of the Spirit. And well, John, John's going to respond to that too. And, and look at what we see there in verses 8, chapter 1, verse 8 through 2, 2. I'm going to read it again. John records, so this first one's a negative. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's the positive in verse 
Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, or some of your translations, how I have it memorized, faithful and just to forgive us of our trespasses and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here comes the next if statement. This is the, the third set. It's a negative. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. That's God. We make God a liar and his word is not in us. And then he breaks a little bit from the pattern here to kind of give that pastoral fatherly affection. He's trying to remind him, I'm not trying to get you. I love you. And he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, here's here's the last if statement, the positive. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So the two negatives are in verses 8 and 10, and they deal with these arguments or these responses that I like to imagine John was anticipating hearing. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, I know we've already hit it, I'm going to hit it again. Walking in the light does not mean that you are sinless. And the most holy thing that you can do, hear me, the most holy thing you can do is not to act like you no longer sin. If we do that, if we act like we've made it, if we act like we are holier than we are, that there is no sin present in our life, if we act like we are not struggling and we have nothing to overcome, if we do that, John says, the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, he says something that's even more offensive, at least to my sensibilities. He says, we make God out to be a liar. Why? Because God said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And often in the Christian life, if we're honest, we feel like Paul in Romans 7.15 where he says, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. You ever been there? I don't know why I'm doing this. I hate this, and yet I keep doing it. I keep running to it. I keep being consumed by it. I hate this. That's us so often. We all sin, and the righteous thing is not to ignore it, not to act like we are holier than we are, not to rest in the fact that we are better than some of those out there. Somebody in the Bible did that. Remember them, the Pharisees? They typically didn't get a good rap. The faithful thing, what will keep us walking in the light is is being honest about where we are and what we struggle with and then laying it at the feet of Jesus because I don't want you to miss the two positive statements coupled with these two negative statements. So the first one comes there in 1 John 1, 9. We, We say this all the time. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our trespasses and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the other cleanse. But then in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have one who advocates with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. You see, the righteous thing, the holy thing is not to ignore sin, but to acknowledge our sin. 
to confess our sin, to repent of our sin. And when we do, John is reminding us that God is faithful and He is just, He is righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we sin, brothers and sisters, God does not abandon us. Rather, Jesus, our atoning sacrifice, advocates for us in the divine throne room of God Almighty. And I don't want you to miss this because this is so powerful. Our hope of forgiveness, now, dare I say, our guarantee of forgiveness does not depend on us never sinning again. It does not depend on us never doing it again. Right? You, you might have heard, par- heard parents say it, or maybe you're a parent and you've said it. Don't say it. It's bad. If you're truly sorry, you won't do that again. Well, praise God that God doesn't say that to us. Right? It doesn't depend on us never doing it again. It doesn't depend on us saying the right word. It doesn't depend on us offering forgiveness. Our hope, our guarantee of forgiveness is grounded in something so much more sure. And I don't want you to miss this. I'm I'm coming close to the end, so so stick with me. In in verse 9, John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Until this week, I never wondered this, but for some reason I was wondering it. Maybe you have wondered it and you're just holier than me. Have you ever wondered why He adds in the midst of this statement that God is faithful and just? Why, Why didn't John just say, If we confess our sin, God... God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It seems like that would get the point across, right? But one of the things that we know is that not a word of Scripture is wasted, amen? And so why does he add these two descriptions of God? Well, again, the answer is powerful. Because by reminding us of God's justice and his righteousness, John is grounding the guarantee of our forgiveness, not in what we do, not in what we say, but in the covenantal faithfulness of our God. Listen, when we repent, when we confess, we are proving that we are united to God in faith. And for those united with God in faith, the promise of forgiveness is ours. The promise of forgiveness is ours because of what Christ has done on the cross. He has already paid for our sins. That's why that word cleanse in verse 9 is not in the present. It's in the aorist. It's in the past tense, defining a single moment when our sins were washed away. He has paid for our sins on the cross. He has taken the debt that we owe on himself and we get his righteousness. And listen to me, the just and righteous thing for a just and righteous God to do is to forgive because of what Christ has done on the cross. And to flake on that promise would be for God himself to deny his covenantal faithfulness. He grounds the guarantee of our forgiveness, not in what we do, not in saying the right words or praying the right prayers. Our guarantee of forgiveness is in the fact that our God is a God of covenantal faithfulness. And if that's not enough, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John grounds our forgiveness in something else. Again, not in what we do, not in what we say, but he grounds our forgiveness in our advocate who has atoned for our sins. He grounds our faithfulness in the blood that was shed and the body that was broken. He grounds our forgiveness in our high priest who at this very moment sits in the throne room of God the Father and intercedes for you, saint. 
Oh, church, and what this means for us is that when we sin, we can be confident in God's forgiveness. Why? Because God's forgiveness is not grounded in anything we do or say. His forgiveness does not depend on us getting it right. His forgiveness is grounded in his covenantal love and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And I want to try to push this into your life like in a practical way here. I know for me, and I believe it's the same for you, that when we sin, Satan wants nothing more than to keep us from running to God. He wants to keep us in this state of shame and embarrassment. He wants us to condemn ourselves, even though we're told in Scripture there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let's be honest for a second. I'll at least be honest with you. I, I do that. I can get so embarrassed, especially with the, the patterns of sin, those stupid sins that I have struggled with for so many years. I can sin again, and my, my kind of default position is to curl up and be like, God, God won't forgive me again. Maybe if I just like pull back and don't spend time with him, he'll forget about it. We can just go back to fellowship, right? Time heals all wounds, right? Satan whispers in your ear that, listen, God does not want you. You keep doing the same thing. You stupid person. Why would he love you? But what these verses remind us is that we enter the throne room of God with confidence, Not in ourselves, but in the covenant faithfulness of the Father and the atoning work of the Son, knowing that as long as sin endures, His grace is greater. That He has cleansed us and washed us and declared us righteous, and then He continues to cleanse us every day on this earth when we confess our sins. Why? Because He is faithful and just. He is faithful and just. I'm so thankful that He continues to forgive sins. But John doesn't even stop there. John says, listen, Jesus' atoning work is not only sufficient for you, but it's sufficient for the whole world. So as I bring this to a close, let me say this. If we are ever going to be a faithful gospel witness to this world, it begins by walking in the light. If we are going to be people who walk in the light, if we are going to make that light known in the midst of a broken and dark world, we don't need to have all the answers. We don't need to have the best arguments and the strongest apologetic work. We need to be honest about who God is and honest about who we are and then live faithfully in light of those truths. And if we do... We will be found faithful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are a God who forgives. Well, first and foremost, God, I thank you that you are a God who is holy, that you are perfect and just in all of your ways, that you are righteous and good, that there is no darkness in you, and that you are a God who gives only good gifts. And I thank you that that you have called us in Christ Jesus, to be adopted as your sons and daughters. And so, God, as we continue to walk this thing out, as we seek to walk in the light, God, give us grace to see you for who you truly are as a holy, just, and righteous God. And help us to be honest about where we are, God. Help us to be honest as we examine, and are we walking in fellowship with you? Are we walking in fellowship with one another? Are we comfortable in our sin?
And if that's the case, God, I pray that you would just break our hearts and that we would run after you believing that you are a God of covenant faithfulness, that the atoning work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient and we can be made new because of what Christ has done for us. Help us, God, to savor the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.